This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. From the team that brought you the world's greatest laugh. <laughs> Robbie. And the world's wheeziest laugh. <laughs> it's behind the scenes on your radio now. All right. Behind the scenes this week. Celebrating a film that turns 50 this year. Chris, I think you know what to do now. We need a bit of gravitas. And we need you going all Italian. No, well, you're not. (laughs) Is it the greatest film sequel of all time? (laughs) I don't know. You're not selling pasta. Half Italian, half Indian there. There's a bit of a fusion that we got going on. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, However, the score is just beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful. It is lovely. Um, This was the first sequel to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. The second, Mm. and as of 2022, the last... Was the Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King? It was released in two thousand and three. It's also the only film with a prequel storyline to be nominated for Best Picture. Gary Oldman said in a twenty fourteen interview that he always tells students who wants to be writers or directors that first on their list of what to watch should be The Godfather Part Two, and that's why it needs to be top of Sonal's list as well. But she needs to watch one first because you wouldn't understand two if you didn't watch one. Well, although Chippy so, has been in touch controversially, yeah, he has. Just Chippy's say, not a fan. yeah, don't don't bother. If the guys say you need to watch all three, that's tw- twenty hours of your life you'll never get back. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't look at it like that. I thought it was twenty hours well spent. Never watched three because all the reports I've heard and all the reviews I've read are that three is terrible, and I didn't want it to ruin my appreciation of one and two. No, watched three. I've never seen three. I've never seen three. Got to complete the circle. Anyway, the uh, material in The Godfather is sandwiched by the parallel stories in Part Two which is a concept that likely has never been attempted either before or since. Yeah, that's right. So, The Godfather was released in 1972, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, generally considered to be among the greatest films of all time. It's a landmark film in the crime genre. Now, obviously, by today's standards, it doesn't really matter how well the film is regarded. You know, if it's released at all, then chances are a sequel. <laughs> it just needs to do vaguely well so at right. the box office and let's lock in nine sequels. But the thing about Godfather was that Coppola was dead against doing a Godfather Part 2. For one, Godfather Part 1 was a beautifully self-contained story. Yeah, it didn't was. really need mm. a sequel. Um, where else could you really take the genre, as, as he goes on to explain here? After The Godfather, I knew how to make that type of Italian-American gangster film, but I didn't want to do it again. I wanted to do something... I, because if you make films you don't know how to make, you learn a lot. If you make films you, you, you do know how to make, you maybe will make more money, but you basically don't learn as much. So I was more curious on going on into different forms and make more movies I didn't know how to make, which is certainly was Apocalypse Now and all the others. They basically wanted me to make another Godfather because they had been so successful. And finally, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse after I, I did try to say, I'll write it and I'll supervise it, but I want to pick a new young director to direct it and had one in mind. And they just said, no, absolutely not. We won't trust this to some new young guy, which they had trusted it to me. So that didn't make any sense. So Paramount Pictures was so set upon doing a sequel that basically, Chris, I I thought I'd put this in in a nice little phrase that you all understand. They did for Francis what Man City did for Pep Guardiola. They just built it for him. They just gave him the keys and just said, like, Francis, he was nearly fired from the first film. (laughs) 
He was given for the second film a Mercedes-Benz 600 limousine from Paramount Pictures. Um, he was given... Uh, there were certain other conditions that, that they uh, acceded to, that the sequel could be interconnected with the first film with the intention of later showing them together, that he be allowed to direct his own script of The Conversation, which was also released in 1974, that he be allowed to direct a production for the San Francisco <laughs> Opera, that he be allowed to write the screenplay for The Great Gatsby all prior to production of the sequel. And they signed off on all of it. The thing they really pushed back against, they hated the idea of calling the film The Godfather Part Two. There was more pushback on the title than, all, than even the ridiculous amount of money I asked them for, which they didn't seem to care, but they rejected the idea as a title, saying people would think it was the second half of the movie they'd already seen. I said, well, that was it. I would do it or I wouldn't do it. And that brought a whole eternity of part twos and part threes and part fours which i if i had known that would happen i wouldn't have done it so coppola is partly to blame for the hollywood obsession with sequels in the first place he's also to blame for the incredibly unimaginative titles you know back to the future one back to the future two back to the future three this is all these are all influenced by the godfather and the godfather part two and the irony is he didn't even want to do a sequel in the first place. But of course, the film is not just a sequel, it's also a prequel. It tells the stories in parallel of Vito Corleone before he became Godfather, and then his son Michael Corleone, the successor to his empire, when both of these guys were of the same age. It's so well done, so, it's so good. You sound, you, know, you certainly look confused, but yeah. it, it's done beautifully. Yeah, it's so good. His idea for part two was to juxtapose the ascension of the family under Vito with the decline yes. of the family under his son, Michael. And he said, I always wanted to write a screenplay that told the story of a father and a son at the same age. Um, they were both in their 30s. I would integrate the two stories in order to not merely make Godfather 1 over again. I gave Godfather 2 a double structure by extending the story in both the past and oh, in the present. It's brilliant. And the result is just an epic film in scale and ambition. It's so complex. It weaves the narrative plot lines together and Francis didn't want to do that follow-on. He wanted to explore the relationship, even without them ever meeting in the film, between father and son. You know, you can always understand the son by the story of his father. I mean, you take Rupert Murdoch. He was a kid in Australia whose father ran a big newspaper and he used to take his son to see it. Or Ted Turner was involved with a father that was a, a, basically a, a salesman of billboard ads and, and out of his interest in his father he went on so the story of the father is always embedded in the son if you're interested in the subject you read one of the earliest persian books called shanahama the story of kings and it's all about the fathers and the sons of the first kings of persia and the son never betrays the father the father always betrays the son yeah, and, you know, it almost also reminds me of, of Succession in a way. Um, you know, yeah. Brian Cox, um, his character and the son, I mean, the sons, the, the children. Mm -hmm. Michael obviously proves himself in The Godfather to be alert. very capable and very ruthless. Indeed. Um, but it's almost like nothing can really replace or carry on the incredible trajectory of that initial self-made man in that respect. In this case, it's Vito Corleone. And um, speaking of the ambitiousness and expansiveness of the film, this is amazing, this stat. The film takes place in 1901, 
1950, and 1960. That is so impressive. Yeah. I mean, it really does. And uh, as we know, Marlon Brando played Vito Corleone in Godfather Part 1. Robert De Niro, he was given the tough task for filling those shoes for Part 2. He actually unsuccessfully auditioned for a part in the first film. That was of Michael's elder brother, Sonny. Here's his audition. You're going to take both of them out on me. You're going to take them. And you know what they're going to do to you? And you know what you do when you knock somebody off? You take a gun, you shoot him right up against his head. That's what you do. You get his, you get his brains all over your nice new Ivy League suit, Michael. That's what happens. How do you like that? It was spectacular, but it was funny. Really like killer, you know, like nothing you could ever sell. And Sonny, of course, was played by James Caan. Yes, yeah. And they just felt... Sonny brilliantly, by the way. Yeah, he does. He does. And Sonny's the older brother. Now, Michael and, in fact, Al is older, I believe, than Robert. So they wanted... Uh, Robert was a bit young to play Sonny Corleone in uh, Santino in the first one. Um, they just felt he wasn't quite the right fit for that character, but he impressed Coppola. So it worked perfectly in his favour because suddenly he gets to be Vito Corleone in the original. And um, this is a stat for Chris that I pulled out. De Niro and Marlon Brando, who played the older Vito Corleone in the first film, were the first pair of actors to win Academy Awards for portraying the same fictional character. And uh, Robert De Niro, he only speaks 17 words of English in the entire film. He learnt Sicilian. He learnt the Sicilian dialect and he speaks... In, in the entire, almost the entirety of his of his part in the film is uh, delivered entirely in Sicilian uh, or Italian. De Niro and Marlon Brando, obviously, they both had their kind of set ways of approaching the character. But um, De Niro actually um, he used the you know that Marlon Brando had the cotton wool in his yes, cheeks. That's right. To sort of puff them out, De Niro actually took a smaller kind of filling whatever you want to call it for his cheeks to sort of embody that a little bit but but not quite the jowls that Mm. marlon brando had and there was a lot of debate about the mustache and whether robert de niro should wear a mustache as a young Vito. they couldn't decide so they just tossed a coin in the end (laughs) and uh, heads the mustache stays tails it goes and the coin landed heads and he, he had a mustache for the film um the actors got hefty pay rises Al Pacino was really, you know, riding the crest of a wave after the success of the first film. He'd earned $25,000 for the first film two years prior. His paycheck for the second film was half a million dollars, plus a 10% share of the profits for the film. Uh, Which doesn't actually sound like that much now, does it? When you consider what actors get these days. Yeah, but 10% of the profits. Mm. I don't know what the profits ultimately were. Giving Robert Downey Jr. 10% of Iron Man or the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Absolutely a oh my god, yeah. Now, James Kahn, who we just mentioned, he asked that he be paid the same amount of money to play Santino at the end of the film in the flashback. He only appears for just a couple of brief moments. And he wanted this in the flashback, you know, the end of the film, don't want to spoil it too much, but it's basically a family dinner. And Sonny is in that scene. Yeah, yeah, and it's the only scene he's in in the part two. He's in most of the entirety of the first movie. He's a major role in the first movie. He, was, he asked for the same amount of money to be paid to him for that, for that one scene, and he got his wish. Great negotiation skills all around. Yeah. Right? If you're Francis Ford Coppola and you don't want to do this second film, but you're like, hmm, I've got about eight other projects I want to do, and you secure yourself the right to do all of those things. It's amazing. Yeah. It really is. Now, Talia Shire, she Famous was, for being who? Well, she was. She played uh, Connie. Yeah, but who is 
Dudley Shire more famous for which no, I don't know. movie history? Adrian, no Rocky's wife. Really? Oh, really? Yeah, wow, I didn't know that. Ah. Guess how much she was paid to play Connie in The Godfather. This is just unbelievable. $1,500. For um, the first movie, $1,500. Yeah. Now, for this film, she received, I mean, it still sounds paltry to me, $30,000 with a $10,000 bonus when the box office receipts hit $27.5 million. So she made... Forty-one and a half thousand dollars for yeah. the two movies. I mean, yeah. that is mental. Yeah, How significant is. is her role in the film? I mean, um, significant. Yeah, enough. significant enough. Mm. She's not a major character, but she's it's a significant role. Right. Anyway, don't want to get into the plot. I mean, the second film. I, I did. I wanted to compare it, Chris, because I know you'd, you'd enjoy this comparison. It's about greed. It's about kind of a man who sort of lost his soul and his connection to any semblance of kind of morality or decency. Um, but it's also, you could look at it as the Corleone family, you could ca- compare them to Manchester United as well, I feel. And Vito is Sir Alex. Right. Michael is basically a combination of Davy Moyes, Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho. <laughs> right. The point is, it didn't really matter who succeeded Vito or indeed Sir Alex. The golden age was them. And whoever came next, yeah. Yeah. it was always going to go downhill. You could have brought Pep to Man United and I think Man United would have still gone downhill. Because... Mm. Alex, a bit of Man U died with Alex. And I think a bit of the Corleone family, of course, well, the the Corleone family was Vito Corleone. Fair, absolutely fair. Um, So there you have it. Thanks for that, just making me feel in a bad mood. Now, I think if we'd got Pep, we would have been a bit better. They're long, they're very long, but they are cinema masterpieces is what they are. Check them out. Fantastic. Well done, Rob. The Offscript Podcast. How they made it on Offscript, charting the life journeys of the most successful people on the planet. <laughs> and today we're looking at Amelia Earhart, who has been in the news yes. lately. All because there was a sort of grainy sonar image that has been put out there. It was put out by Tony Romeo, who says he has found with his sea exploration company, basically solved the mystery of what happened to her when she went missing back in 1937. If you're not familiar with the mystery, I think most people are. We're going to get a little bit more into her life and actually what transpired back in 1937 and what we know about it. She was born in Kansas. 1897, Amelia Mary Earhart, and she, from the start, basically from the off, was not into traditional gender roles. I mean, we take it for granted now that, you know, people are trying to break down those barriers, but imagine what it was like back at the turn of the 1900s. Yeah, of course. You can, you can only imagine what the expectations were, but at an early age, she was playing basketball, she was taking an auto repair course, she attended college as well, which we'll get into, and initially, she wasn't all that impressed by airlines, despite becoming one of the, probably the most uh, famous female aviator, I think it's fair to say. Her initial run-in with airlines back in 1908, according to some of her diary entries, she says she was unmoved by a thing of rusty wire and wood when she saw one at the Iowa State Fair. Uh, I'd be pretty unmoved in 1908, by the way. You don't think so? I mean, back then, it's a totally novel experience. Yeah, but you wouldn't get me up there. Oh, as in unmoved to actually go up. It sounds like she was unimpressed altogether. Really? Altogether, yeah, the whole thing. 
But it was years later that she she realized that she had quite a passion for it. She was working as a nurse's aide in Toronto, and her friends and her would sort of hang out at some of the hangars, some of the flying fields, chatting with the pilots, watching aerial shows, and she became a bit fixated, a bit fascinated by it all. And that's when she decided to take some lessons. There was a, the very first woman to run her own aviation business was Netta Snook. And, you know, this was back in the 1920s. So pretty, you know, yeah, trailblazers even exactly. Then, right? She gave Earhart flying lessons, and for every minute in they spent in the air, it cost one dollar. Is that what it was? Yes, imagine ten yeah. minutes in the air—that's ten dollars. So to pay for those lessons, she worked as a filing clerk at the L.A. telephone company. And this was a big theme. You know, flying was her passion, and she did what she had to to make sure she was able to do that, which is an interesting way to live your life. She spent time working as a social worker in Boston. She wrote articles. She provided career counseling at Purdue University in their Department of Aeronautics. All of that, obviously, to fund and fuel her passion, really, which was flying. She tried to get an education, but even though she was very intelligent, she couldn't really stick with it. Um, She took some pre-med classes at Columbia University, so she definitely had aspirations at looking at a career in medicine. That was back in 1919. She dropped out after a year, came back to Columbia in 1925, left again, tried again by taking some classes at Harvard, no less. But when she didn't get her scholarship into MIT, she decided to leave all of that behind her. Um, so definitely impressive institutions that she was she was attending. It's fair to say. Now, within, uh, do you ever like take up a passion and and at some point you have to decide are you going to invest in this or not? Yeah, golf was the one for me. Well, how long did it take before you bought you purchased your first golf clubs? Uh, I think probably what three four months after the fact. I was yeah. like, right, Rob was in my ear. I'm going to get some clubs. Going to kick myself out yeah. now. I've caught the bug well and truly. Therefore, I'm going to invest some serious cash. And you stayed with it. And I've whereas, stayed with it, of course. Whereas I feel like any passion I've ever had where I've invested in something, you kind of take a couple lessons in something, you write, all right, it's time to level up. Buy the drum kit. And on that and then, hand, how's the drum kit going? <laughs> well, it was going really well until I was sort of forced into a break because we had a guest and my drum kit was in the guest room um, for a couple months. And then I need to pick it back up again. But it's like once you've had that break, the momentum is, it's no, been we, slow. Let's get back to your drumming kit. Have yeah. you purchased a bike? Do you want a bike? Well, I got a bike for Christmas. Oh, did you? Yeah. And I have used it a couple Good times. Good Go on, Marty. Uh, so he gave you the bike to you. <laughs> We're restoring the reputation <laughs> bit by bit, block by block of the hubby. Yes, well we done. are. Yeah. But anyways, she basically, six months into her flying lessons, decided she was just going to go ahead and buy a plane. <laughs> so she named it the Canary. It was yellow. It was used. It was a Kinner Arister biplane, as it was called. She made $2,000 for it, despite the fact that her teacher thought it was a bit overrated, underpowered, overpriced, and too difficult for a beginner to land, is what um, her teacher, Snook, said. Uh, But she went ahead and she did it anyways. Imagine it's too difficult for you to land that plane. Yeah. You wouldn't want to go up in it, would (laughs) you? Exactly. That plane's a little bit tricky to land. Yeah, but that's kind of essential that I get back onto, (laughs) you know, firm ground at some stage. I know. I don't want to fly forever (laughs) up there. It's such a casual cavalier attitude towards... You know, being up in the skies, even back then when it was a relatively new technology, compared to like, I wouldn't do that today. Somebody's like, this is going to be a bit difficult for you to land. Exactly. You're not going anywhere near that thing. Avoid. Just imagine casually buying a yellow airplane that somebody's used and you don't, you know, you've only been learning for about six months or so. I mean, it's impressive. It is very impressive. It all really took off for her, it's fair to say, when there was a promoter, a publisher by the name of George Putnam. Now, this changed her life when he got in touch on multiple levels because her big claim to fame, even though she was an amateur pilot, a lot of people think of her as the first female pilot. She was not. 
She was among many female pioneers in aviation. She's just the only one that we all remember. The reason why? She was kind of an early days influencer. She was just really good with the media. So even though, by all accounts, she wasn't even as good a pilot as some of her other female contemporaries, she's the one who's remembered throughout the years. And part of that has to do with George Putnam, um, who was looking for somebody, the right sort of fit for a female passenger to make it across the Atlantic Ocean. Back in 1928, this was a big deal. And in fact, she was only a passenger. She describes herself on this flight as being a sack of potatoes. She was piloted, but just as a passenger across the Atlantic, being the first woman to make that journey, it still created quite a lot of buzz. There was, you know, the glory days of aviation. And that just sort of set her on the path for breaking a number of the records that she attempted. And they really were incredibly impressive. And how her life changed when she met the promoter and publisher, George Putnam. And it was also the beginning of their love story. Because, of course, the two of them had a working relationship. And when Putnam's marriage ended, he then went on to propose to Earhart. Now, for those days, she had quite a liberal, progressive attitude towards marriage. She believed in equal responsibilities for both breadwinners. She insisted that she keep her own surname. And she said yes a little bit reluctantly. She said it was really important for the both of them to have different identities. She didn't want to get sort of... Uh, subsumed into his life, I guess you could say. So she asked him to agree to a trial marriage. They would assess after a year if they were happy or not. And if not, they'd be free to go their own separate ways. No hard feelings. And he agreed to it. Turns out they lived happily for as long as she was here before she actually eventually disappeared. Um, She did end up setting a number of aviation records in her rather short career. So initially, as I said, she got attention for just being a passenger. But her first record came in 1922 when she became the first woman to fly solo above 14,000 feet. Then in 1932, she became the first woman and the second person, period, uh, to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She describes her descent into Ireland at the end of that journey. I decided to come down anyway in the best available pasture. I got down without any trouble and taxied to the front door of a surprised farmer's cottage. After receiving a real Irish welcome, I took a paramount plane to London. So she didn't know where she was going to land. She saw a little farmer's pasture and that, that was her spot. So of course he was a little bit surprised when she just rolled up in her airplane. <laughs> out of the skies on his farm. Well, what was the first thing she did when she crossed over the pond? According to news reports, she was just hankering for some retail therapy. After her 13-hour trip from Harbor Grace, Miss Earhart's greeted by a pouring rain. That's gratitude. But she's on her way to the American Embassy, where she spends a little time with Ambassador Mellon, all dressed up in some clothes borrowed from Mrs. David Bruce, daughter of Mr. Mellon. You see, all that Amelia took across was $20 and a bottle of tomato juice. And if you don't think she's raring to go shopping, you just watch her leave number 14 Prince's Gate, bound for London's biggest shops. How odd were the news reports back in the day? So odd. And it's like, why the, the cheery trombone brass band in the background yeah. people must have gotten so irritated with that brass band because it was on every news report well I guess they were just used to it it was just the mode of the time but some of the details included in that story right she bottled clothes I know so why are the 
telling us who she borrowed her clothes from because she didn't bring any clothes to London with her. $20 and some tomato juice. (laughs) Exactly. Well, later that year, she also made the first solo nonstop flight across the U.S. by a woman. She started in Los Angeles and landed 19 hours later in Newark in New Jersey. Amelia Earhart Putnam lands at Newark after her epical 2,500-mile hop from Los Angeles, breaking Ruth Nichols' distance record and setting a new time mark for women. It took me about 19 hours and uh, a few minutes to uh, make the trip. I wish I could have done it faster. 19 hours to fly across the U.S. Can you imagine that? It probably takes about five hours now. Yeah, about that. New York to Vegas, five and a half. First lady of the time, Eleanor Roosevelt, was so inspired by her. They were good friends that she actually signed up for flying lessons, but it seems she never actually followed through with her plan. Then... In 1937, June the 1st, Amelia Earhart takes it off from Oakland, California, and she is setting off on an ambitious journey, a flight around the world. She wants to become the first pilot ever to circumnavigate the globe. She had a twin-engine Lockheed 10E Electra was her plane, and she was accompanied by a navigator, Fred Noonan. Now, they fly to Miami, down to South America, across the Atlantic to Africa. They go to India. They go to Southeast Asia. I mean, they got pretty far along the journey. They had flown 22,000 miles, with only 7,000 miles left to go to reach Oakland, which was their final destination, their final point to complete that journey. They reached New Guinea on June the 29th, and they take off from there and departed for a very tiny island called Howland Island. It's their next refueling sh- uh, stop. And that was the last time that she or Noonan were seen alive. So they lost radio contact with the U.S. Coast Guard, and they basically disappeared en route. And nobody knows to this day what happened to her. And there has been such a fascination around the mystery of the fact that they sort of just completely disappeared. At the time, it was a huge deal in the news. The president himself, Franklin D. Roosevelt, authorized a two-week search for them. They spent $4 million searching for Amelia and Noonan. At the time, it was the most expensive air and sea search in history. But they were never found. By July 19th, they were both declared lost at sea. There are a number of theories about their disappearance and what actually happened here. Now, an obvious one was the crash and sink theory. Yeah, the obvious one. That's the one, right? ran out of gas while they were looking for Howland Island, crashed into the open ocean somewhere just off the island. But, you know, they've gone out looking for the wreckage and, and, of course, haven't been able to find it. There's another theory. The theories get a bit more out there that they served as spies for the Roosevelt administration. And they actually returned to the U.S. under secret identities and lived. she lived a quiet life in New Jersey. I mean, she does not strike me as somebody who's willing to yeah, live a quiet right life. That's right up there with the Tupac is still alive theory. Right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Another theory is that they were both captured and then executed by the Japanese. Of course, mm-hmm. it was late 30s at this point. So there were tensions running high between the U.S. and Japan. So you can see where that theory came from. And then there's the Gardner Island hypothesis. It was actually the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery that suggested that they both veered off course from Howland Island and actually landed on another island, but on Gardner Island, which is now called Nikumaroro in Kiribati. And it was an uninhabited island. And the thinking is that they sort of lived as castaways on this island for a period of time. In fact, there were certain artifacts that were discovered, um, signs of habitation, but no evidence of an airplane. 
They think perhaps that they survive for days, even weeks on the island before eventually passing away there. So, you know, they found some pieces of plexiglass that they think could have come from the plane's window, a woman's shoe dating back to the 1930s, some improvised tools, uh, even a cosmetics jar from the 1930s. So there's quite a bit of evidence that seems to suggest that they actually did land, that they didn't sort of end up just in the sea. They landed and they were castaways, but you don't, you know, we don't know. Again, that's just a theory. It certainly hasn't been proven. So, number of theories that are out there. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this current investigation that's on that they, where they think that they found her plane in the end. But her legacy, of course, remains as a pioneer and inspiration to women and women's rights. As I mentioned before, she wasn't necessarily the best female pilot. She was just the most well-known. She knew how to work the media. She was the Kimmy K of her she was. generation. She was. She just knew how to be famous. She knew how to I did not expect Amelia Earhart to be thrown in with Kim Kardashian. Or for Zonal to agree with that well, analogy. No. Oh, maybe I don't agree with that. She did no. have some legitimate achievements to Yeah, yeah. so did to Kim. Her. Come on now, so did yeah, Kim. Of course. Let's not be too harsh on Kim. The Offscript Podcast. No mystery, just history on Offscript. I'm going to ask you this. We're going to talk food fights. When do you think Taco Tuesday became a thing? Oh, when the Americans got their paw prints all over it. This is Tex-Mex, right? Taco Tuesday. I'm going to say 1987. Yeah, I'm going to say it's a 1990s thing. I think the rise of Taco Tuesdays came hand in hand with the rise of Michael Jordan. Really? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Just uh, well, decent guesses. But here's the thing. Taco Tuesday... It's actually much older than you would ever imagine giving it credit for. Certainly me. It actually emerged from murky origins. <laughs> just to be clear, <laughs> I just want you to know, Rob, I've never sat there pondering <laughs> Taco Tuesdays yeah, but, were born. You know, first it, had that brilliant uh, idea. Hey, listen, <laughs> I mean, to me, I, I would have gone, it probably came about during the rise of the hashtag era. Like Taco Tuesday. I would have thought that it would, it would only be like 15 years old or so. Right. You know, when people started tweeting, hashtag Taco Tuesday. <laughs> but no, it's got murky origins that date back to the 20th century. Now, according to a magazine, Thrillist, the El Paso Herald Post reported <laughs> on a Taco Tuesday deal at the White Star Cafeteria in the St. Regis Hotel in El Paso back in 1933. Ooh. The damn thing's nearly 100 years old. Now, in the decades that followed, restaurants offered the country um, cheap tacos on Tuesday because of alliteration, of course. The phrase first appeared as a proper noun in print in the 1973 issue of the Rapid City Journal. See, you, you learn history in this you segment. Do, like you, you do. You um, do. Now, an advertisement. Just history, though, that I'm not rushing on to say. <laughs> did you know Taco Tuesdays? When did you think they were invented? I've got no idea. 1933. There was an ad for the Snow White Drive-In, um, and it featured the words, Stop in on Taco Tuesday. And it had a picture of the flamenco dancer. So it was a thing, okay? You were right, though, when you said 80s, 90s, because in the 1980s, a company decided, you know what? We're, gonna, we're actually going to claim ownership of this little phrase. So the owner of Taco John's, which is a franchise in Wyoming, introduced Taco Tuesday as a way to boost business on the slowest day of the week, which was a Tuesday. So for 99 cents, you could purchase two tacos. The deal was very popular. It spread throughout the Midwest. By 1989, Taco John's had simplified the name to Taco Tuesday, and they registered it with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and they led to ads like this. It's Tuesday, which at Taco John's means Taco Tuesday. 
Taco John's Taco Tuesday. Crispy beef tacos, specially priced. Mine. What is it with the Jones? Is there not pa- Papa Jones? Is that not a pizza? Yeah, it yeah. is. What the heck? What's up with the Jones? Oh, I've never they heard could, of Taco Jones. They could use Jones. some of your advertising creativity, I think, in that ad. Yeah, Just it wasn't different great, variations was it? of them saying taco and Tuesday, really. It, it, yeah, exactly that. They've, they've found something and they're just going to stick with it. Now, despite evidence to the contrary, Taco John's claims to have invented the expression. Their website reads, ever heard of Taco Tuesday? We started it. That's how seriously we take tacos. Um, But, you know, there were various organisations that that grew weary of Taco John's claims. And they were like, hang on a minute. We're not going to have this. What Taco John did, they operate in 23 states, but they held the trademark in 49 states. For some reason, the only state that they didn't get the trademark in was New Jersey, uh, which is a weird aside to this. But national taco chains were just not happy that Taco John's was basically trying to keep Taco Tuesday for itself. This is the story I didn't know I (laughs) needed to hear. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So in May of last year, Taco Bell entered the picture. You know, Taco Bell, the big behemoth. You know, Taco John's relatively niche... You know, it operates 67 branches in the Midwest. Taco Bell, nationwide, big powerhouse. This is basically like Doncaster Rovers this irritating is, uh, Manchester United. This is an FA Cup 15 yeah, times. It, 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 it really is. It's Utah's finest versus, uh, you know, the nationwide uh, yes. brute force of Taco Bell. So Taco Bell comes into the picture and uh, they filed a petition with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, urging them to free Taco Tuesday to the public, okay? They argued that because the phrase was widely used, Taco John's claim to look to, just didn't hold any legal water. They said, and I quote, everyone, from your local taco truck to your favorite mom-and-pop taco joint, to us at Taco Bell, we repeat, everyone should have the right to say Taco Tuesday on everyone's favorite taco day of the week without possibly getting sued. That's what they said in the change.org petition, okay? Now, I think that finally, was your best American accent effort ever. Really? Can yeah. I just say, I gave Robbie five minutes to get through a feature and we thought we'd take three minutes. It's six o'clock yeah. and you still got half of this feature. <laughs> no, I'm on. nearly done, I'm nearly done. Anyway, after lots of legal wranglings, of course, the might of Manchester United, a.k.a. Taco Bell, was finally too much for poor old little old Taco John just couldn't resist it. They conceded. And do you know what they said, which I kind of love? They said, we're lovers, not fighters. <laughs> they, they, the CEO of Taco John's, Jim Creel, said, we've always prided ourselves on being the home of Taco Tuesday, but paying millions of dollars to lawyers to defend our mark just doesn't feel like the right thing to do. Good on, Jim. Um, and eventually, NBA superstar LeBron James got dragged into this because he petitioned to trademark Taco Tuesday in 2019, but that was denied and he actually has appeared in quite a few taco bell commercials advocating for universal use of the phrase he's a big fan i never knew that um but here he is bellowing it into his phone you know what it is it's taco tuesday taco tuesday how much did he get paid for that nonsense (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's also 8 o'clock, Rob. This was meant to be a three-minute feature. It's taken two hours to get there, so... That's it. So who We're wants done. Taco Tuesday now? Well, it's universal. It's universal. <laughs> yeah, we all own it. You could have just told us that in 10 that seconds. That is another edition of No Mystery, Just History. I enjoyed it. 8 o'clock, enjoy your night. Ta-da! 
the Offscript podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 